Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that your word might go forth with power, that we might be transformed, that we may be made more and more like Christ Jesus, our King and our Savior. This we pray in his name. Amen. I want to start out today by reading just a little bit of another passage. This is from Ezekiel chapter 42, verses 15 to 20. And Ezekiel here, much like John, is being shown a vision of a new temple. Uh, This is sometime around uh, 570 B.C., something like that, as the exile is coming to an end. And Ezekiel is given a vision uh, of the temple. And this is just one little piece of how he describes it. I want you to listen carefully to this. Now, when he had finished measuring the inner temple, he brought me out through the gateway that faces toward the east and measured it all around. He measured the east side with the measuring rod, 500 rods by the measuring rod all around. He measured the north side, 500 rods by the measuring rod all around. He measured the south side, 500 rods by the measuring rod. He came around to the west side and measured 500 rods by the measuring rod. He measured it on the four sides. It had a wall all around. 500 cubits long and 500 wide to separate the holy areas from the common. Now, hearing a passage like that, uh, are you deeply convicted? Are you cut to the heart? Does that passage make you feel ashamed? Do those words of Ezekiel pierce you through? Well, they should. You might think, well, how? (laughs) Well, they should. Listen to this from the very next chapter. This is a few verses over. This is Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 10 to 13. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Ezekiel says here, or really the Lord says to Ezekiel, when the people hear this description of the temple, this visionary temple that Ezekiel sees and writes down, the people should be ashamed. Why is that? Well, because as we're told here, the vision is a kind of law. Ezekiel calls it the law of the temple. Ezekiel is being given a law in the form of a vision in the form of a blueprint for this temple. See, Ezekiel's temple is not a temple they were supposed to build on the other side of the exile. When they returned, they did build a temple, but that was not the point of Ezekiel's vision so much. It was not a temple they were to build. It's a temple they were to be. And that's really the point. The vision Ezekiel has is a symbolic architectural model of what their community should look like. 
And John's vision in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 works the exact same way. It is a pattern for the people of God. John is a new Ezekiel describing the new temple. We figure out what the church should be by unpacking the meaning of these different symbolic structures that John saw. The walls, the gates, the cube shape, the mountain, the trees, the river. All of it translates into the kind of community God wants his church to be. In other words, what John saw is a blueprint for the church. It's God's design for the church. The church God is building. The church we are supposed to be a part of building. It's described here in Revelation 21 and 22. This is a model of God's kingdom, of God's people. Yes, it's idealized. The church as she exists today does not fulfill this vision completely. But it is still a description of who we are now and who we are becoming and what we will ultimately be in history. We can look at this vision and say, this is who we are. It's descriptive of the church. We can look at this vision and also say, be who you are. It's prescriptive for the church. What did John see? He saw the church who we are and who we should be. Now, thus far, looking at this in in the previous two weeks, we have seen how this vision reveals the church as a liturgical community, that is a worshiping community, and how this vision reveals the church as a missional community. The church is a community that has a mission to the nations. Today, we're going to round that out by seeing how this vision describes the church as both a triumphant community and as a suffering community. Oh, but you might say, suffering and triumph, it seems like those are at odds. How can the church be both? And how can the church be both at the same time? Well, actually, they fit together perfectly, as we're going to see. Let's talk first about the church as a triumphant community. To see this in Revelation 21 and 22, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The most wonderful story in the world is the story of the world. The most wonderful story of all is the story God tells through his creation. And that story starts in a garden. Man is given the task of ruling and subduing the earth, taking dominion over the whole creation, multiplying and filling the earth. In other words, man is to transform the garden into a city. That's man's original vocation. That's man's original commissioning. During the creation week, during the six days of creation, we see God forming, filling, and glorifying the earth. We find that the earth was good on the sixth day of creation, but it could be made better. It wasn't yet perfected. It was not yet matured. And so what does God do? God hands the project over to man to finish. And that is man's task. Now, of course, we know how the story goes. In Genesis chapter 3, sin derails the plan. Man rebels against God. He rebels against this plan. But because man is still man, he's still going to subdue. He's still going to take dominion over the earth. He's still going to multiply and fill the earth. Only now he does so in sinful ways. Now his dominion is twisted because man himself lives under the dominion of sin. 
And of course, he continues to bring new people into the world, multiplying and filling the earth. But every new person brought into the world is a sinner as well. So the project God gave to man in the beginning goes off the rails. It goes off the tracks because of man's sin. The garden still becomes something else, but what does it become? The garden becomes a jungle or a wilderness. The garden still gets turned into a city. But these cities are filled with violence and brokenness like Cain's city in Genesis chapter 4. The garden gets turned into the city of man. But God's not going to allow sin to win. Right there in Genesis 3, we already see it. God promises to send a new Adam, a second Adam. This Adam will not sin. This Adam will come to undo the curse brought on by the first Adam. He will crush the head of the satanic serpent. He will ultimately fulfill this original creation mandate, ruling over the earth in wisdom, forming it in beauty, and filling it with the glory of now-redeemed image bearers. That will be his mission, his task. This new Adam will transform the Garden of Eden into a city, but it will be the city of God, the new Jerusalem. The city God intended. That's the trajectory of the Bible story from garden to city, from Eden to the new Jerusalem. The first Adam wrecked it. The second Adam comes to complete it. But the second Adam doesn't do it alone. Again, go back to the first couple of chapters of Genesis. What do we find? The first Adam was given this mandate, but he could not fulfill his mandate without his bride Eve. And while obviously there would be a division of labor between the man and the woman in terms of the roles they would play fulfilling this mandate, it would be a joint project. The man and the woman together would undertake this work. Together they would rule. Together they would fill the earth. Together they would have dominion. Together they would multiply. Now it is up to the new Adam to fulfill this mandate. But of course he is joined by his bride as well. And his bride is the church. And this tells us what our task is as disciples of Christ, as the bride of Christ. The church's mission is broad. The church's mission is as broad as the original vocation of mankind. It's as broad as the cultural mandate. The church is the new humanity, fulfilling God's creation mandate, and in doing so, building the new Jerusalem. Now, this is what we see in Revelation 21 and 22. The Garden of Eden has been transformed. That's what you see in these chapters. The Garden of Eden has been transformed, matured, and glorified. The Garden of Eden has been shaped and sculpted into a beautiful city of light. In fact, we can say it is a garden city, which I think is a beautiful picture. You've got features of the city described throughout chapter 21, but then in chapter 22, you see it has features of a garden as well. It's like Eden, only matured and and perfected. You know, people will sometimes debate, what's better, town or country? What's better, city life with all its sophistication and complexity, with its highly developed culture? There are things that happen in the city that can't happen anywhere else. Is that better? Or is country life better? An agrarian way of life with its simplicity, its, its closeness to the patterns and rhythms of nature of the created order. Well, these chapters show us the church combines the best of both, its nature and culture, to gather glorified. It's not just a garden, it's a city, but it's a city garden. It's a garden city. 
The new Jerusalem is the glorified Garden of Eden. And this really is John's point then. In and through his bride, the church, the new Adam fulfills the creation mandate. He triumphs. He fulfills the original mandate. Now, that's not to say the whole mandate is fulfilled by the institutional church. No, obviously not. The church as an institution focuses on worship. But the church as a whole is the new humanity. And what we do when we gather here on Sundays transforms what we do on Mondays and every other day of the week. We are citizens of a heavenly city. And that shapes how we live as citizens of an earthly city. We heavenize earth. We colonize earth. We do God's will on earth as it's done in heaven. We plant colonies of heaven on earth. And every Christian in every lawful vocation is contributing to this project. So your vocation day by day, what you do Monday through Saturday, your vocation, it's not just about providing a comfortable life for yourself. It's about transforming the world. It's about making the world a better place, making the world better than it was before you were here, leaving it better than you found it. It's about transforming the world into the kind of world God wants it to be. So think about what this means for us. Think about what this means for us here in Birmingham. We want our church to be a representation of what John saw. We want our community, our congregation, to be an embodiment of the new Jerusalem John saw in his vision. But as a consequence of that, we also want our city as a whole transformed. So Birmingham comes to be patterned after the new Jerusalem as well. So we can ask, what do race relations look like in the new Jerusalem? That's what we want it to look like in our city. What do families look like in the new Jerusalem of the church? How do husbands and wives treat one another? Uh, What does family life look like? That's what we want our city as a whole to be. What is art like in the New Jerusalem? What is business like in the New Jerusalem? We want to disciple our city. So the whole city reflects God's design in all these ways. God's design for social life. God's design for family life. God's design for business life. All these things. And this is really what our daily work is about. In our daily work. Think about all the different vocations represented in this congregation in our daily work as artists and doctors and homemakers and engineers and teachers and retailers and politicians and carpenters and on and on as we faithfully fulfill our vocations each one of us is playing our part injecting the life of the new jerusalem into the life of birmingham We are making the city of man more and more into the city of God. Imperceptibly, perhaps, but it's happening. The rivers are flowing out from the new garden. Those rivers are flowing out into the world. The city of man is being reconstructed using God's blueprints for his city. And of course, as we've seen too, as we talked about last week, this also means the treasures of the city are brought in. The treasures of the city of man are brought into God's city. They're transformed and dedicated to his service as well. See, we perform our vocations in obedience to God. 
And when we do so, we are ruling and subduing the earth in wisdom. We are bringing light and glory into the world as God intended. Now, of course, we cannot do this without disrupting the city of man, without arousing all kinds of opposition. That's obvious. But John here shows us, John's vision shows us that over the course of history, over the course of centuries and generations, as God's people are faithful, the world will be transformed. We are personally transformed when we gather as God's city and worship him through the liturgy of word and sacrament. God does his work in us and upon us. But then there is the liturgy after the liturgy. Because we have gathered here to worship God, all of life becomes worship. All of life becomes a liturgical offering to God. It's the liturgy after the liturgy. Our work is transformed into worship. And so the liturgy we do here forms us so we can go out there and form the world. God is forming us here into the kinds of people he wants us to be so we can go out there and form the world and the culture into what God wants it to be. The fact that John sees the garden transformed into a garden city means we will triumph in this work. We will succeed. It means sin does not wreck God's program in the end. God's program for culture and for creation will be fulfilled. This is a glorious picture of what that looks like. The kingdom will come. The Garden of Eden will be transformed into the city of God. Indeed, it is happening right now. Now, our earthly cities are being made into the city of God. Earthly kingdoms are being converted into the kingdom of Christ. History has a trajectory. History has a flow. It has a direction. And again and again, we see in Scripture, the gospel will be victorious. Jesus will be victorious. He came to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, whatever the curse has touched, which is everything in human life, Jesus came to bless it, to roll back that curse and put his blessing there instead. Now, we live in a time where all of this is hard to see, quite frankly. We live in a time when it seems like the whole world is going insane. Our cities don't look like glorified gardens right now. We find that our culture is out of touch with reality on all kinds of issues of sex and gender and marriage and the unborn. We seek to defy the most basic principles of reality. We believe our technology allows us to remake creation in our own image, to remake creation in the image of our own ideologies. We think we can turn men into women and women into men. We think we can create wealth out of nothing, without work, without sacrifice. We think we can defy God's established authorities and that our autonomy will have no negative consequences for us. Their culture is wrong on all these counts. What are we to do? The church is to be a voice of truth in a world full of lies and fake news. The church is to be a place of beauty in a world that is full of ugliness. The church is to be a place of sanity in the midst of a world gone mad. The church is to be a a place, a community of love, peace, and joy in a world full of hatred. The church represents the way things ought to be. 
the model of human life as God designed it. That's what John saw in his vision. That's what we're called to be. And John shows us in this vision, through all the ups and downs of history, the church is being built. The church will be victorious. The kingdom will come. The creation project will be completed. The earth will be subdued and filled in righteousness. The kingdom of God grows and transforms the world. Yes, slowly, but inexorably. It's really interesting to think about the pictures of the kingdom that Jesus gave us. He, in Matthew 13, compared the kingdom to a mustard seed. The smallest of all seeds, tiny little seed. But it grows into the greatest of all trees in the garden. So the birds of the air come and, and, and make their nest in this tree. Jesus there also compared his kingdom to leaven that gets put into the whole batch of dough and slowly transforms all of it. That too is a picture of the kingdom. Jesus said his disciples would be like a city set on a hill. What did John see? A city set on a mountain. The the city that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount is the city that John sees here in Revelation 21 and 22. That's what we are to be. And that city is a light, a light shining into the world. That's what we're called to be, a light that overcomes the darkness. In the end, God's truth triumphs. In the end, the gospel will be victorious. Jesus and his bride will defeat their enemies of sin and Satan. But there's something else here to notice. Yes, the church is a triumphant community, but how do we get there? And this is so important to see. How do we win this battle and fulfill this mission? How do we make this a reality? How do we bring this to pass? Well, in a word, it is through suffering. Because yes, the church is a triumphant community. That's why we see the human vocation fulfilled in and through the church in Revelation 21 and 22. But we also see here that the church fulfills that vocation. The church fulfills that mission. The church wins that victory. The church triumphs through suffering. Like Jesus, the church suffers and serves her way to victory. The church is a triumphant community, but only because the church is also a suffering community Indeed, we might say a cruciform community. It's because the church bears her cross as well. God beautifies his church, and he leads us to victory through trial and through turmoil. And we see that here, but we see it in an incredibly subtle way. In Revelation chapter 21, the church is described in all different kinds of ways. The church is identified as a bride and a city. And John gives us various features of the bride in the city. And one thing we see is she is covered in beautiful gemstones. This is part of her adornment, part of her glory. She's described as a bride prepared for her husband, adorned for her husband. Well, God has taste. God delights in beauty. He wants a beautiful bride, an adorned bride. This bride is adorned. She is adorned with these glorious, beautiful gemstones. Look at these different beautiful stones that belong to the bride city. We find there are 12 stones on the 12 foundations. And it is interesting, these 12 stones overlap with the 12 stones that were on the, high, on the breastplate of the high priest uh, in Old Covenant Israel. And of course, on the breastplate of the high priest, those 12 stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. The lists don't match exactly, and I have not figured out 
uh, how to make these 12 stones match with the 12 tribes. I'm not quite sure what that would look like. But here's what I want you to see. Genesis chapter 2 calls attention to the fact that there are these precious metals in the earth. It talks about the outer lying lands, the lands outside of, uh, of the Garden of Eden, where these precious metals are found in the earth. Of course, Genesis also tells us that man was made from the earth. Man was made from the dirt. I know it's not particularly flattering to hear that, uh, but it's right there in Genesis 2. We are living clods of dirt. How are gemstones made? Well, basically, it's something like this. Dirt is put under pressure and heat. Now, I'm not saying that would get you an A in a geology class, okay, if you, if you gave that answer. But that's basically what it comes down to for virtually all of these stones that are listed. This is how they are formed. It's some combination of pressure and heat inside the Earth's surface. So think about this. If man is made from the dirt and the church ultimately becomes gemstones, how did that transformation take place? How does man get from being dirt to being these gorgeous gemstones. How does dirt get turned into topaz and jasper and amethyst and all the others we read about? It is through pressure and heat. In other words, it is through trial and suffering and pain. God turns up the heat in your life. God turns up the pressure in your life. And he does so to transform you to take you from dirt to gemstone, to make you more beautiful and more glorious. You know, people are always asking, why does God bring pain and persecution into our lives? Why does God allow us to go through such difficult hardship? Why does God put us through the ringer? It seems like again and again and again. Well, here's an answer to that question. It is because God wants to glorify you. He wants to take you from one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory. God wants to beautify his bride. He wants to take her from one degree of beauty to a greater degree of beauty. And when we as his people stay faithful through hard times, our suffering becomes transformative in our lives. And we go from dirt to jewels. These 12 foundation stones in the vision... They're not just associated with the 12 tribes of Israel, that's obvious, but they're also associated with the apostles. Think about the apostles. The apostles suffered unto glory. They are all models of suffering. Virtually all of the apostles died martyrs' deaths. Peter was crucified upside down. Thaddeus was stoned to death. Paul was beheaded, and on and on we could go through the 12. They all suffered. They all endured great trial and hardship, great persecution for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. But all their suffering was suffering unto glory. So the church is going to be victorious. She is a triumphant community. In times like ours, we must remember that. But we must also remember this victory comes through trial. The church is also a suffering community. There is heat and pressure that must be endured for this transformation to take place. And the reason we can do this, the reason we can endure such great suffering is because the bride of Christ has a special promise. See, Christ suffered for his bride. He went to the cross and suffered and died for his bride. He died for her sins. He died to rescue her 
from the enemies that had taken her captive, ultimately to to crush the head of her captor, Satan, and set her free. Jesus went to the cross and suffered and died for his bride. But now his bride is going to suffer as well. But where Jesus suffered alone, the bride never suffers alone. In her suffering, her husband is with her. And so, in a way, her suffering becomes a participation in his suffering. The bride never suffers alone. So, when you are suffering, remember this. Remember when you are enduring trial, what God is doing. He is transforming, he is glorifying, he is beautifying you. He is transforming you from the dirt you were made out of in the beginning to this precious gemstone he wants you to be. The fires and pressures of life serve this purpose. To purify, to strengthen, to perfect, to mature, to glorify. That's God's purpose. Our light and momentary afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us continue our worship by giving our tithes and offerings.